This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Quick heads up. In today's show, we are talking about the Capitol riot a year ago. There's a whole bunch of swearing that day. We quote it. We play tape of it. We refer to it. You've been warned. Just about a year ago, Jack Griffith was getting ready to make a trip to Washington. It was going to be a 600-mile journey, and we are not exactly sure how he got there or who he stayed with once he arrived. What we are sure of is that he was psyched. This is a bit of video of Griffith and his friends that just breached the Capitol building on January 6th. They're all really excited. Um, one of them says, we're in this bitch. Another one screams, we're going in. And then this guy literally just screams because he's so excited. So no doubt he's happy to be there. He's happy to be there. BuzzFeed news reporter Zoe Tillman wanted to talk about Jack Griffith's story. Because to her, what happened to Griffith, it'll tell you a little bit about some of the defendants who have spent the last year reckoning with their actions at the Capitol. First of all, a whole lot of these folks are not sorry. Afterwards, we found that he had been promoting a video game that he was building where it's like a first-person Donald Trump shooter game. These people are sick and depraved and will soon also be dead. The Donald Trump character can shoot dem zombies and Antifa. Hold it, he was designing that video game after January 6th. That's right. That's right. After he got arrested, Griffith seemed to treat the whole thing like a promotional opportunity. I'm a citizen. I had nothing to do with any violence, vandalism, and I love all my fellow citizens. And I hope you all check out my new Trump video game, Endgame. Check me out on my social medias, Liberty Dragon. Have an exuberant evening, ting! Here's the other thing Zoe's noticed about defendants like Griffith. When they show up in court, judges and prosecutors are still puzzling out exactly what to do with them. They aren't really sure yet what is the right outcome. You know, is it... Two weeks in jail? Is it three years of court supervision? Is it a hefty fine? And I, I think they aren't really sure. In Jack Griffith's case, the judge called the federal prosecutor's work muddled and schizophrenic. This inconsistent charging pattern, the judge said, left her with no choice but to reject the Justice Department's request to send Griffith to prison for three months. So she ended up not imposing incarceration for Mr. Griffith. She sentenced him to a period of home confinement and probation. And you could really hear the frustration. So she was frustrated, but she was also kind of penned in. Yeah, she she said that she felt that, you know, I have a responsibility to not 
hand down unwarranted, you know, sentences that are unwarranted in their, in their difference. You know, people are charged with the same offense. It's the court's responsibility and obligation to, to be fair. And it can't be all over the place. A year after January 6th, is anyone particularly satisfied with how these prosecutions are going? That's a tough question. You know, there was talk of looking at sedition charges. That has not happened. Republicans, a lot of conservative commentators continue to think that this is unnecessary and that these are political prisoners. I don't know that you can answer the question of are people satisfied or not at this point. It's it's just, it all feels very unsettled. Today on the show, one year later for the rioters of January 6th, hundreds are being prosecuted, but will it make any difference? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Covering the courts during the pandemic, it has looked a little different for Zoe Tillman. A lot of hearings are done remotely. So she dials in, listens to an audio feed of what's going on. And since there are more than 700 January 6th riot defendants, she's been doing a lot of listening. Sometimes I've literally had, you know, earbuds, different earbuds and different ears trying to tune in to two different hearings at the same time. Oh, my gosh. You've alluded to how judges are expressing some frustration with these cases. And I want to dig into that because the judges are the people who are getting to really weigh both sides here. Even if they're looking at a deal, they're kind of looking at elements of of both sides of this equation and trying to weigh what's fair. And I think that's interesting. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about who the judges are and the moments where this tension has become clear. Right. I mean, you have basically this year 20, 20 people who have been tasked with deciding, you know, what is justice for an unprecedented insurrection and an attack on the U.S. Capitol. The D.C. Federal District Court has a, a majority of judges who are appointed by Democratic presidents. But, you know, I think when we're dealing with the, the district court level, um, these are trial court judges. A lot of the decisions they're making are not ones where politics enters the arena. I don't know that it's a situation where you can say, well, all of the Republican appointees are doing X. I mean, you can't say that. It's it's not true. There have been some judges who have stood out for harsher sentences than others. One of them is, is Judge Tanya Chutkin. She is a former public defender. I think that experience is more helpful in, I think, understanding 
her framing of these cases than the fact that she was confirmed under President Obama. You know, she's a lot of experience with the criminal justice system, a lot of experience with, you know, what justice has looked like for a lot of people, especially people of color and poor people coming through the justice system and, and trying to say, you know, are these defendants now, are they being treated the same? And that's a, been a big question hanging over all of this. And Judge Chutkin did something surprising, which is she actually got involved in giving a defendant a harsher sentence than the prosecution had been asking for, right? That's right. That was the case of Matthew Mazzocco. Um, and that was one where the government had said, you know, home confinement, probation is acceptable. And she said, no, it, it, the, the punishment for this crime generally cannot be sitting at home. I know that just really quickly, just explain who Matthew Mazzocco is. Like, I know that he pled guilty to parading on the Capitol grounds. Why did the judge think it was especially important to up his sentence? Matthew Mazzocco is is one of the many cases where social media uh, proved his downfall. He had posted on Facebook a selfie of himself in front of the Capitol, sort of making a, a fierce face at the camera with the caption, the Capitol is ours, exclamation mark. He took other selfies both outside and inside the Capitol. He's smiling at the camera. He's clearly having a great time. Um, and what Judge Chutkin said was that treating this as entertainment was not acceptable. And, you know, he, I think she used the word uh, that he documented the chaos around him as if it were entertainment. And that to her showed what his mindset was in participating in the insurrection, you know, that he couldn't claim he was an unwitting participant. She felt that that evidence warranted something stiffer. And that's an approach that she has carried through since that initial sentencing for Mr. Mazzocco, where she has been more likely to go above the government's recommendation. And she wants people to know that the reason she's doing that is because she thinks it's the way to stop a future insurrection. Other judges have disagreed. And, you know, it's a, it's an ongoing debate that we're getting to watch unfold. Interesting. I mean, some people have said this is inappropriate essentially, for her to intervene in this way and sort of get involved when prosecutors are often coming to her with a plea deal, something that they've worked out. Something that is always made clear to defendants when they enter into a, a plea agreement and, and put their guilty plea on the record is the judge, any judge, will always make sure they know that the court is not bound by the terms of that plea deal. Hmm. You know, the government might agree to recommend a lower sentence, but the judge always makes very clear that no one has promised them what the judge will do. So, you know, it is unusual for a judge to go above the government's recommendation, but not unheard of. And it's it's allowed. I wonder if you've seen judges change the way they approach these cases over the course of the year. Like, I know that you wrote a bit about U.S. District Judge Royce Lamberth, who was the first judge to sentence a Capitol rioter. And then you noted that as the year went on, he got stricter. And I wonder if you can talk about that and why you think that happened. Yeah, I mean, Judge Lamberth has made clear why his approach changed. Um, and he's written that basically he felt that he got burned by that first sentence. It was um, the case of Anna Morgan Lloyd, 
who received a period of probation. And she cried as she was sentenced, right? She did. She was very emotional that she, you know, realizing the level of violence now was um, very upsetting to her. And the judge said that he felt that it was heartfelt and genuine and that he believed that probation was appropriate. And the next day, she made an appearance on Fox News. Anna Morgan Lloyd joins me now. Talking about her decision to plead guilty and striking a different tone. Nobody was breaking anything. When they call it an insurrection, what do you say? I can only talk about the area I was in, and I don't believe it. It was not particularly remorseful. It was certainly not emotional. It wasn't the same emotion that she showed to Judge Lamberth. And and now I should say her lawyer has said that Fox News um, played her client, that they took things out of context and set her up, and she really was remorseful. But a lot of judges have cited Anna Morgan Lloyd's case in saying, how do I know that this this remorse that you're showing me is genuine. And Judge Lamberth has said, has written in other cases, you know, the court is skeptical of this other, of this defendant's expression of remorse because the court previously felt misled by Miss Anna Morgan Lloyd. When it came time for Judge Lamberth to sentence another defendant named Frank Scavo, he was inclined to really throw the book at him and made clear that the Morgan Lloyd case was a a big part of that. The government had asked for 14 days incarceration. Um, Frank Scavo had organized buses from Pennsylvania, had recorded video throughout his time going into the Capitol. Stormed the fucking Capitol of the fucking United States at 58 years old. What the fuck is wrong with America? Judge Lambert ended up sentencing him to two months of incarceration and a $5,000 fine. Hmm. Um, and basically told Frank Scavo, I don't buy it when you tell me you're sorry. I know that you said a lot of these judges were appointed by Democrats, but I know that some weren't. In fact, there's a Trump judge in the mix here, a guy named Judge Trevor McFadden. How are you seeing differences in how the judges think about these cases given their politics, or are you seeing that? Yeah, so there there are a few um, judges who were confirmed under Trump who have been on the bench, and one of them is Judge McFadden. The exchange that we, we point to most often is where, in one case, Judge McFadden had brought up the way that the Justice Department had handled decisions about when to bring charges and not against people who were arrested during the protests last summer in a, in a number of cities against police brutality and racism. Oh, so he's comparing BLM protests to what happened at the Capitol. Right. And he said in, in thinking about whether the Justice Department has been fair in its treatment of January 6th defendants, he basically said that he didn't think that they had been even-handed. But, you know, I think Judge McFadden is one of the only ones to, to make the comparison to the protests last summer, which has been a really common conservative right-wing talking point. And Judge Chutkin from the Matthew Mazzocco case, you know, the, the harsher sentences, it was really unusual. She publicly, you know, in another case, called out Judge McFadden and said, I disagree with him. I don't think it's a fair comparison. Those were protests ultimately about the fight for civil rights. And you just can't compare anything about what happened last summer 
with people who stormed the Capitol to try and stop the peaceful transfer of power. So you have judges sort of openly fighting with each other via different hearings in different cases. It's it's a very unusual situation. And you raised the issue of the speed of the trials, right? And whether folks involved in January 6th were getting due process in due time. Yes. Although I think it's worth saying a, several, a number of judges have expressed some concern, especially for incarcerated defendants, about delays in the case. Um, and it hasn't just been Republican-appointed judges who have brought up that issue. The funny thing about that speedy trial concern is when I heard it, I couldn't help but think about, you know, I'm in New York, where people can sit on Rikers Island for months and years waiting for a trial here. So the idea that people are sitting and waiting for a trial, I'm not saying it's right. It just doesn't seem unfamiliar. It doesn't seem unexpected to me. So I was surprised to see that be a a concern with a lot of judges. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating element of the January 6th cases is that um, several prominent Republican members of Congress like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gatz, have taken up the cause of incarcerated January 6th defendants. And they've used it as a way to raise awareness about conditions at the D.C. jail, which have been bad for years and which criminal justice advocates and organizations that you would normally associate with the Democratic Party have been raising the alarm about the D.C. jail for a long time. And suddenly, you know, the public and judges are are paying attention. It led to an investigation by the U.S. Marshals, and they ended up pulling some federal defendants out of the D.C. jail because of the conditions there. So a few judges have noted the, the interesting turn of events um, that have ultimately put folks on the same side who wouldn't normally be there, that Marjorie Taylor Greene would become you know, an advocate for reforming the D.C. jail. I don't think anyone would have on their bingo card for 2021. We're going to take a quick break. Back in a minute with more from my conversation with BuzzFeed senior legal reporter Zoe Tillman. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. 
but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Okay, so listening to your sort of perspective on and how the judges have been reacting to these cases. What stands out to me is that no matter where your political sympathies lie, if you're a judge, you are frustrated with the way these prosecutions are playing out. You're frustrated with other judges. You're frustrated with the prosecution and the lawyers there. And I wonder if you think, as someone who's been a legal observer for a while, that the concerns the judges are raising are legitimate. Like, are are the prosecutors focused enough here? What I can say is judges have expressed frustration. It's come from across the ideological spectrum. And if not frustration, I think they've expressed confusion about the direction of the prosecution, about the charging decisions, about the incarceration decisions. And because these are all, it's a pending investigation, these are pending cases, it's not a situation where the U.S. Attorney's Office and prosecutors are out there publicly holding press conferences to explain their approach to these cases. I wonder if anyone inside the DOJ or or prosecutors ever allude to what they might need to do their jobs more quickly or efficiently or fairly. Are they resourced enough? They've identified some of the challenges that they faced, mostly in terms of coming up with a system for collecting the huge mountain of evidence um, in these cases and finding a way to make it available to all of the defendants in a way that's fair and respects privacy. Yeah, one of the things that is unique about this is like there's tons of evidence. I would say maybe there's even too much evidence. Yeah, I mean, I think a challenge is that, you know, if you're charged with illegally parading in the Capitol, um, you may want to know not just what is the evidence that shows your client, but, you know, what what were other people doing that day? What's the comparison? You know, were you more or less serious than other people? And then you've expanded the potential amount of relevant evidence to be unlim- to be limitless. <laughs> but, you know, they've they've tapped FBI offices and I think nearly every field office in the country. They've brought in prosecutors from other from a, a variety of divisions um, to handle these cases. They have the the full Justice Department at their disposal. I think you've seen more defense lawyers saying we're overwhelmed. You know, they don't have the same foundation of resources to draw on. Particularly thinking of the Federal Public Defender's Office in Washington. Hmm. So looking at all these cases together, do you see any kind of theme that's holding them together? Like anything that makes you think, okay, we've seen this for about a year, and now I understand how these are going to be working moving forward. I I think the common thread is an unanswered question, which is, you know, how to hold an individual responsible for a collective event that was far more serious than the specific criminal activity that they engaged in. Um, and I think that the, the assumption that 
we're, we're operating on at this point is that the government's intent is to actually try to charge everyone they can who participated. The sense is that they are trying to send a message that this sort of mass event will go punished. Um, you know, it's not just about impeachment of Donald Trump. It's not just about the congressional investigation, but that if you know you do something criminal, even if you say it's because you believed the president or because of your political beliefs, that you can't you can't commit a crime in furtherance of that. And that seems to be the message the Justice Department wants to send. If you really want to send that message that what happened was unacceptable, why wouldn't you charge these people so far with anything like sedition or treason? That's a great question for the U.S. attorney in Washington. It's a choice that they've made. And, you know, I think a lot of times prosecutors will talk about the challenge of, you know, they know what the public writ large sort of wants them to to do, but they're constrained by the evidence in front of them and what federal criminal statutes lay out as the elements of a particular offense. And if they wanted to bring a charge like sedition, it's very rare and they could face a serious legal challenge to that. And that, you know, ties up and delays and distracts potentially from the, the task of just trying to punish people for committing the crime that they committed on the ground versus sort of the the bigger crime that they were a part of. Well, I guess the argument then would be for prosecutors to pursue charges against people who orchestrated the events of January 6th, not just the people who poured into the building and were there. Are, Are there any signs that the Department of Justice is looking to do that? to prosecute this not just as a series of bad actors, but as an organized attempt to change the outcome of an election. There's no indication at this point that that's on the table. I think what we've seen that's that hints at a situation where they're trying to sort of build up a case is, you know, we have some cooperators who have come out of a conspiracy case involving the Oath Keepers, which is one of these extremist groups. But um, the Oath Keepers had connections to people like Roger Stone, who had connections to Donald Trump and other organizers that day. So, you know, I think there are hints that they are exploring different avenues, but there is no indication, you know, that there's certainly no search warrants executed that we're aware of or, or things that would suggest that that's taken another step up as far as their hmm. intent to go after some of these higher level folks. What about following up on leads provided by the House investigation into January 6th? Right. You know, there's been some recent reporting that one option the committee is thinking about is that when they finish their work, you know, are there referrals that they could make over to the Justice Department of people they think should be potentially criminally charged? And, you know, there's been some speculation that this option would give a bit more political cover to the Justice Department, that it's it's not a situation where DOJ is deciding on its own to investigate or bring charges against a, a particular actor, but it's Congress making the referral and then the Justice Department following up on that lead. Um, and, you know, Attorney General Merrick Garland has made clear from the start that he is wary of any perception that he is a 
is acting for political motivations and certainly charging someone like Donald Trump would be a politically explosive move. It's how the charges came about against Steve Bannon, one of, of Trump's longtime advisors and close allies who was prosecuted for defying a committee subpoena um, after the House, after Congress voted to find him in contempt and then kick that over to the Justice Department. So there's you know precedent for criminal charges coming out of the investigation. Um, but it's it seems too early to know if that's a path that they're going to pursue in the end. Zoe Tillman, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Zoe Tillman is a senior legal reporter for BuzzFeed. Big thanks to her for recording this episode while she was fighting a cold. You're the best, Zoe. And that is our show. We are back after a nice little end-of-year break. We hope you enjoyed a vacation, too. And we hope you enjoyed all the archival episodes we ran over the last week or so. We thought they were really great. Tomorrow, we are going to keep with the January 6th theme and talk to Barton Gelman. He's a staff writer at The Atlantic. He's going to tell us all about what's happened since January 6th that points to more Democratic disruptions ahead. What Next is produced by Carmel Dalshad, Daniel Hewitt, Elena Schwartz, and Mary Wilson. We are led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. Big shout out to Shah Shah, who fixed our computers and made these episodes possible. And I'm Mary Harris. You can track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. See what I was up to during the break. In the meantime, I'll catch you back here tomorrow. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.